From the Allen Slate Radio Institute at the Faculty of Communication and Design, this is the Ryerson Today podcast, where we look at the people, ideas, and culture of Ryerson University. You can also hear it on CJRU 1280 AM. This is Melissa Uvanti for Ryerson Today. In the past year and a half, approximately 30,000 people have arrived at the Canadian-U.S. border at unofficial border crossings, seeking asylum. Ontario's new premier, Doug Ford, recently said that this is the cause of a housing crisis in the province, and in particular, the city of Toronto. Of course, asylum claimants require shelter and support services. Ford went on to say that this threatens the services that Ontario families depend on. He blamed the federal government's immigration policies for the problem. Many of you may remember a tweet that Justin Trudeau sent out in January of 2017. He tweeted out a welcome to those fleeing persecution, terror, or war, saying that Canadians would welcome all, regardless of faith. Some have said this tweet has given the green light for thousands of people to seek refuge in Canada. Today, I'm chatting with Enver Saluji, Assistant Vice President of Ryerson International. We'll discuss migration and the rise in coverage of asylum seekers at the Canadian-U.S. border. We're going to explore how mass migration in 2018 is not just a Canadian issue, but a global issue, and talk about Canada's commitment to refugee resettlement and the unique relationship that our country has with the USA. In addition to directing Ryerson's international activities, Enver is a professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration, where he has published research on equity, human rights, and migration issues. This summer, he is part of an international university conference about migration and the city called World Cities World Class Symposium. I myself have had the pleasure and privilege of being one of Enver's students in my first year of grad studies in immigration and settlement studies here at Ryerson. I am so pleased to have him join us to talk about this timely and important topic. Welcome to the studio, Enver. Thank you very much, Melissa. I'm honored to be with you. Thank you. So, Enver, in September of 2015, a photo of a Syrian toddler, Alan Kurdi, went viral. He was just three years old. The image made global headlines after he drowned in the Mediterranean Sea and his body washed up onto the shore. Life in Canada was a bit different then. Stephen Harper was prime minister. It was two months before the federal election where Justin Trudeau and the Liberals would come into power. I've heard you describe that moment when that photo went viral as a defining moment. Can you explain why? I think it's a defining moment uh, for a number of reasons. First of all, because it was the most difficult photograph to see. Mm. It was uh, heart-wrenching. Yes. I mean, it brought uh, tears to the eyes of millions around the world. So uh, certainly at the level of humanity, it was uh, something that I think affected us all and touched us all deeply. Secondly, it was a defining moment because I think it forever altered the 2015 elections in Canada. Immigration, migration, refugee issues were never defining moments for electoral politics in Canada. But the inability of the Harper government to respond in an appropriate way to the global events that were unfolding as a result of the Syrian crisis. And uh, the inability of that government to to respond in a timely way to the particulars of the photograph and its impact on the Canadian public left the space open for uh, Justin Trudeau and the Liberals to in fact enter that space and make 
the credible and I think rightfully Canadian argument that we should open our borders to those who were coming from Syria, fleeing persecution, fleeing war and seeking refuge. So it was and it and it turned the tide of our uh, of our elections at that time, mm-hmm. undoubtedly turned the tide of our elections. And uh, you, you mentioned Syria. And last year, the majority of migrants who arrived at Canada's borders from the U.S. were Haitian. Many U.S. outlets um, have attributed this largely to the Trump administration, removing the temporary protected status for immigrants from Haiti living in the U.S. What are some of the other push-pull factors that are forcing people to flee their homes due to violence, conflict, and persecution in 2018, both through the U.S. and, and globally? Well, as you know, the United Nations recently released a report that said more people are on the move now than ever before uh, in human history. I think the seminal uh, international convention, the UN Convention on the Rights of Refugees, is the one, and Canada is a signatory to that, uh, places obligations on nation states to, in fact, undertake policies and programs to ensure refugees have a place of refuge. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, of course, with uh, all the caveats, that is your due process, law, et cetera, et cetera. In the Canadian context and in the global context, uh, what we're seeing is people fleeing violence, political persecution, internal conflict, civil war, regional wars. More recently, a huge and interesting discussion about uh, people fleeing the consequences of uh, ecological disaster, Mm -hmm. which are global and are consequential because of what both nations in the North and the South do to our environment and as a result create people who are displaced as a result of uh, environmental disasters. And we're seeing, uh, you know, uh, for example, the persecution of the Rohingya. So Mm -hmm. on a global scale, we're seeing huge measures undertaken both by nation states on the one side and uh, quasi-governments that are either not yet formalized in some cases but act as though they're formal governments persecuting people. And uh, I think rightly so, people face those persecutions, Mm -hmm. flee the persecution and uh, seek refuge wherever they can. But as you well know, the bulk of people fleeing persecution uh, are located within striking distance of the countries from which they migrate. That's right. And and I've heard you say that as well, that in terms of numbers, people are more often going to the neighboring countries around them. Let's talk about that, because in, in 2015, Germany reported that they took in 890 thousand asylum seekers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In 2017, two years later, that number has dropped to 186,000. In 2015, the Canadian federal government reported that 16,125 assignment claimants were processed. And in 2017, there were 50,000. As of July 2018, we're at 25,000. So when we look at the numbers alone, this seems like a drop in the bucket. Canada has accepted just a fraction of refugees on the move. Why don't these numbers match up with these sentiments of a refugee crisis that we're hearing about? Really, really, really good question. You know, uh, uh, what can I say? Uh, The overwhelming majority of people settle in in the region. There's absolutely no doubt about them. Let us look at the crisis in 
uh, in Myanmar uh, and now uh, as a result of uh, the persecution of the Rohingya, three quarters of a million almost overnight ended up in Bangladesh with the vast majority in the Cox Bazaar area, three quarters of a million. That is <laughs> 750,000 <laughs> and we are thinking that 10,000 irregular crossings at our southernmost border constitutes a national crisis, which it doesn't. So why, the question is why? Why is it that in Turkey, 2 million get resettled and it's not a national crisis, but for us, 15,000 is a national crisis? The answer, I think, lies in the global, a global discourse, a global targeting of migrants who are now being seen in particularly disparaging lights uh, to the south of us and uh, in much of Europe. Mm -hmm. Look at the rise of right-wing populism in Italy, in Hungary, in various parts of Europe, in France even, in the United Kingdom, where immigrants and migrants are being blamed for the socioeconomic crisis that prevails in those countries. And much of that crisis is a result of the collapse of uh, those economies after 2008 and the absence of any recovery. Mm -hmm. So what we see is a shifting of the blame uh, onto migrants. So there's an international fear of uh, irregular migrants. Even though our numbers are small, we a segment of our population have imbibed that message. Yeah. And... In Canada, we have the challenge of a federal government setting our national policy on um, immigration and refugee policy, but the impact of that is felt uh, at the level of the city. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the federal government has some responsibility to the city to ensure the successful settlement of people who come to Canada. Mm -hmm. right? So, And where it doesn't, it places uh, undue pressures and burdens on the city. So for a number of, I think, international discourse reasons, as well as uh, sociopolitical reasons at the city level in terms of service delivery, and we're all feeling the impact of that service delivery challenge on our city, there's a segment of our population that feels that irregular migrants are getting a deal that they shouldn't be getting. And that's simply wrong. Yeah, that, that's a good segue towards my next question, which was that the, the position that some Canadians take, which is that refugees are a burden to the system and that there's a common rhetoric that Canada is being overwhelmed by hordes of refugees and that they're jumping the queue ahead of legitimate immigration candidates. How would you respond to those arguments? I'd respond uh, in two ways. First of all, to remind people that Canada is a land of uh, the First Peoples. Everyone else came to this country, every single one of us, right? no matter whether one traces one's heritage back to the fathers and mothers of confederation, mm -hmm. whether you came to Canada two days ago, every single one of us is really an uninvited guest yes. uh, on this land. Mm -hmm. So for us to then turn around and then say to others that you not uh, welcome here, uh, smacks of the worst kind of hypocrisy because I think we really have to take a serious look at ourselves and recognize that every single one of us is on occupied lands. That's a really good point, too, about language. You know, I heard you use 
the term irregular, which is now used by the Immigration and Refugee Board of Canada to describe border crossings between ports of entry. We've heard words, other words, though, invasion, surge, crisis, illegal mm-hmm. migrants. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, why, why is terminology important in the way we characterize asylum seekers, both at the Canadian-U.S. border or otherwise? How does the way that we speak about these individuals, both in the media and outside, significant to the way the rest of Canada perceives these individuals? I must have taught you something because you're asking damn good questions. <laughs> really good questions. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right again. You know, um, language is so important. And I think much of the language that you've just identified goes back to the days of the Harper government. And I think the then Minister of Immigration and that government the Prime Minister of the day, both bear responsibility for creating a climate that uh, says something very significant. There's good immigrants and the rest are bad immigrants. And the good immigrants are the ones we select. The rest of you are queue jumpers. The rest of you don't deserve to be in Canada. The rest of you are taking advantage of our system. And we've heard that in official government discourses time and time and time again. That national discourse set by the government, the Harper government, permeated much of Canadian thinking during the time they were in power. And they passed legislation that uh, also reflected that language, that discourse, that they are deserving immigrants and the rest are undeserving. Hmm. Yet, we are signatories to international convention and we have a legal obligation in international law to uphold those conventions. And one of the conventions is the Convention on the Rights of, uh, of Refugees. We signed that convention. We have to uphold that convention. We have systems in place in, in, in our country that will determine if I make a refugee claim, then the system has to take hold of it. The claim goes forward and a board makes a determination as to whether my claim is rightful claim or a wrongful claim. And if it's not a rightful claim, I have the right to appeal and so on and so forth. And it takes its course. Right? So we have systems in place. We have obligations in international law. And we have an obligation to uphold those, those very conventions that we signed. So besides being a signatory to the UN's International Conventions on the Rights of Refugees, what are some other legal obligations that we have. You know, a lot of people have been talking about the relationship between Canada and the U.S. and the Safe Mm -hmm. Third Country Agreement. Can you speak to some of the other obligations we hold legally? So uh, we have, uh, in accordance with the U.N. Convention, we also have our immigration laws. Mm -hmm. We also have uh, our internal policies and procedures with respect to uh, anybody who makes a uh, claim on the basis of being uh, an asylum seeker. We also have the Safe uh, Third uh, Country Agreement with the United States, which says that a claimant has to make a claim for asylum in the country in which they first arrive. So if they arrive in Canada first, then they'll make a claim here. If they arrive in the United States first, they would make a claim there. The One of the interesting loopholes in that is anyone who's who arrives at a Canadian border and crosses that border. At an irregular. Yes. Yes. In an irregular manner. Mm -hmm. Is not subject to that safe third country agreement. 
And that's one of the interesting loopholes that have now that has now caused huge consternation mm-hmm. uh, in our country. Right? So we have an obligation under that agreement to allow them to cross the border. So we have two things going on simultaneously. We have people crossing the border, which means they've committed an illegal act because it's illegal to cross the border mm-hmm. in that manner. So on the one hand, they're an irregular arrival. On the other hand, they still have the right to make a refugee claim. Mm-hmm. So we have two things happening simultaneously, with the result that uh, some are calling for us to close that loophole. But in we're the third safe country agreement is something that we signed with another country. Mm-hmm. So it takes two parties to open up that negotiation. And so, so one of the opposition parties has, in fact, said close the loophole and the other has said rescind the agreement. Mm-hmm. Right? And neither route is that easy mm-hmm. for the current government. So, yeah, so we see last year we saw approximately 20,000 people coming over as uh, through that loophole as uh, irre- uh, irregular migrants. This year we're up to, we might reach that number, plus minus a bit. But you know what's also equally interesting? Today in the Toronto Star, there was an article that said there's numbers of people who are crossing the other way as well. Ah, going to the U.S. Going to the U.S. (laughs) So the Toronto Star reported, for example, on the Mexican side in, I believe, last year, there were approximately 303,000 people apprehended coming over from Mexico into the United States. But... From the northern border crossing, there were just over 3,000 people. We don't hear about that. Right. So it's interesting. And many of them were using sort of the northeastern United States as the, uh, as the vehicle of entry. Mm-hmm. Through Maine. Through Maine, Vermont, uh, that whole area. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. We don't and hear so, about that. So it's something that goes both ways sure. as well. Right. Yes. And um, the upcoming International WC2 Symposium called Migration, the City and the University. Ryerson's hosting that. Some other you know, big cities have held this conference in the past. Can you tell me more about what you'll be addressing during that conference? It's called WC2. It's a, a really a, a wonderful gathering and symposium of city-based universities. It includes uh, one from each country. So um, Ryerson University is honored to be a part of that because of our city-based location and our reputation as a city builder. Are also colleagues from, for example, Hong Kong Polytechnic, City University New York, City University London, University of Vatisrand in Johannesburg, Sao Paulo University in, in Brazil, and so on. So we've got colleagues from Russia, from Australia, from China, South Africa, from Mexico, Brazil, Canada, Germany, the United Kingdom, all coming to talk about uh, city-based problems and the challenges that a city faces and the role the university has in dealing with some of those problems. And as uh, as you know, and being a student and an employee at Ryerson, we pride ourselves on being a part of our cityscape and we pride ourselves on being a city builder. So when we decided to host uh, our colleagues from around the world, we decided that uh, the the overarching theme for the symposium should be the role of the university and the city in the context of migration. 
So we, we believe that as a city and as a university, we have a role and a responsibility in probably one of the defining moments uh, of uh, the contemporary 21st century. And that is the challenge of, of, uh, of migration. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, the cities and the universities that are coming from around the world can learn something from us and we can learn in turn from them as well. So the opening session on the Monday has two fabulous speakers, very well-known Canadians, Senator Ratna Omidva and uh, the esteemed John Ralston Saul, engaging in a discussion about the role of the city, the university, the challenges of uh, migration, and uh, what Canada has to offer and what Canada can learn. Mm-hmm. So that one is on the very first day, on the Monday. Mm-hmm. It's open to the public, so it's going to be a fabulous Wonderful. event. With just, And it's moderated by Harun Siddiqui, former editor of the Toronto Star, of course. Wonderful. And, you know, speaking of learning and what the government can learn, it's likely, as you predicted, that migration is going to be one of the key issues at the upcoming 2019 federal election. Prime Minister Trudeau just shuffled his cabinet, Mm -hmm. and he will be running for a second term to keep the Liberals in power. What advice do you have for the party leaders, Justin Trudeau, Andrew Scheer, and Jagmeet Singh? To all of them, I'd say we've got to ensure that Canada uh, meets and I would say exceeds its international obligations with respect to uh, immigration and refugee status for people. We have obligations. We should meet those uh, obligations. We should keep Canada as open and inclusive as possible. Clearly, there's a, there's a divide in the population. And that goes to your earlier question about uh, sort of the global temperature around migration, the, I think, divisive discourses in Europe. But I think we have a unique role to play globally in creating a climate of inclusion rather than exclusion. Mm -hmm. And I think it behooves our national leaders, all three of them, not to stoop to the lowest common denominator and make migrants the focus of an election campaign and paint them uh, in a negative way. Mm -hmm. I think it would be simply immoral Mm -hmm. for any one of the leaders to do that. Mm -hmm. That leads us to the question about the Canadian identity. Canada, as you mentioned earlier, we're a settler colonial state on land that was taken from Indigenous peoples. Our country has framed certain newcomers, be they refugees or immigrants, as desirable, and others who are not. How much is the current anti-refugee rhetoric about where they are from, what kinds of countries they come from, Mm -hmm. the color of their skin and their religion? Uh, uh, There's no doubt. uh, Just before coming here, I was uh, uh, in a meeting with uh, the two keynote speakers for the WCT conference, uh, John Ralston Sol and and Ratna Omidvine. We were talking about what they were going to be covering and the format and so on. and, And I thought, John Ralston Saul made a really good point. He said, you know, the language around migrant and citizenship is an interesting language because migrant is about those who are other. And that means the Muslim, the brown, the black. Whereas the the discourse on citizenship is around 
the original Canadian identity of the two so-called uh, founding nations, which are actually the two so-called colonizing nations. And, and I thought that was a really insightful comment. And he's actually arguing for a, a whole radical rethinking about the language we use. And I, and I hope he, he talks about that. But he's absolutely right. It gets to your point. And that is uh, the good and the bad. That discourse now is precisely because of uh, who's coming over. And it is about the intersection of uh, migration, precarity, race. Mm -hmm. One of the things, one of the most damaging things that the Harper government ever did was to vilify the brown Muslim male in the Canadian discourse. And I think that image of the brown Muslim male as a terrorist became the most significant signifier of the bad migrant mm -hmm. versus the good one. The old stock Canadian. The old stock versus those who are now coming in and are going to disrupt the country. And rather than, in fact, seeing people, one, for who they are, and two, for the contributions they're going to make and are making to that which defines us uh, as an interesting social experiment called Canada. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So last question for you. Are you hopeful about the future? I'm always hopeful about the future. Always hopeful. Always hopeful. Mm -hmm. um, what are you hopeful about? I'm hopeful that uh, we'll take two things to heart in our country. First, an official recognition that we live on stolen lands, that we take to heart all the recommendations of the TRC, that we stop the, I think, damaging discourses around the indigenous people, the first peoples of Canada, that uh, we do an unqualified uh, apology for the historic wrongs of settler colonialism. I'm also hopeful that that apology and that understanding will be and must be and should be imparted to every single person who comes into Canada, who currently is in Canada, but who also comes into Canada and comes with a recognition that they're coming into a land that was taken from the First Peoples. So on that front, I'm hopeful that we'll shift as a result of the tremendous work of Justice St. Clair and others on the TRC, that we will shift our thinking. I'm also hopeful for a second reason, and that is that uh, the current generation will come to see people coming into Canada, not as good as bad, not as deserving immigrants and undeserving migrants, not creating a hierarchy of migrants from the economic migrant to the, you know, unwelcomed uh, refugee who might be seen as a Q-jumper, but in fact will welcome people on the basis of uh, inclusion, on the basis of uh, a recognition that people have uh, global rights, that they have rights by virtue of being human, not rights by virtue of being from a particular country with a particular national origin and national identity mm -hmm. or a cultural or religious identity. So that we create a, uh, a Canada 
And this is where I think I'm hopeful that the new generation and that people like you <laughs> and others take on the challenge of uh, building a Canada that is inclusive on the one side, but at the same time recognizes the historical injustices against the uh, Indigenous peoples and finding ways to uh, right that historic wrong. A challenge. That's the challenge, and that's why I'm hopeful, because yes. I'm hopeful that people like yourself and others are going to take up that challenge and We're meet it, it okay. in ways that my generation hasn't. Right. Okay. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for tuning into this conversation with Enver Saluji. There will be more discussion about this issue at the International WC2 Symposium called Migration, the City, and the University. Ryerson University is hosting the conference on August 12th to 16th, 2018. It's open to Ryerson faculty and graduate students and is free to attend. Some of the sessions are open to the general public, as Enver mentioned. You can find out more and register at www.ryerson.ca slash ri slash WC2. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to the Ryerson Today podcast. To find out more about what's happening on campus, please visit our podcast page at ryerson.ca slash ryersontoday, add the podcast to your RSS feed, or subscribe on iTunes. Please rate and review us on iTunes, or contact us at ryersontoday at ryerson.ca with your feedback. You can also follow us on Twitter at RyersonU and Facebook. For more campus news, visit ryerson.ca. This podcast was recorded at the Allen Slate Radio Institute at the RTA School of Media in the Faculty of Communication and Design. <laughs>